This morning's scripture reading is found in Hebrews chapter 11. For those of you using the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, it can be found on page 1192. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And then skipping to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is the word of the Lord. Why should I believe? It's a question a lot of people ask, especially during times of adversity. In times of trial, some of you this morning may be in a place where the people and things that you've trusted in in the past aren't there anymore. Maybe you've lost your best friend, your job, your home, your reputation. Maybe your belief in God has taken a beating at school or the old answers that you used to believe just don't seem to satisfy anymore. Perhaps I'm speaking this morning to someone who is disappointed. Disappointed with life. Disappointed with yourself. Perhaps even disappointed with God. And so if that is true of you, you are definitely asking the question today, why should I believe? Why should I trust in anything or anybody? Maybe it's better to follow the advice of some who say, don't believe in anything. That way you won't ever be let down. I titled my sermon this morning, Becoming a Person of Faith. Let me tell you where I'm coming from today. I have committed my life to the idea that there are things in life worth believing in. The value of love, hope in the future, human potential, the existence of God, the resurrection of Jesus, all of that and much, much more are things that give me a reason to wake up every morning. But I am aware that not everybody looks at life that way. I realize that while some of you probably agree with me theoretically, life has been hard for you. Your faith has been kicked around and kicked around so much until it feels very weak if it feels at all. But despite that, you're here. 
You chose to wake up today and come to church on Easter Sunday morning. That means your heart is open, even if only a little bit, to a word from God. So I want to take us as a congregation into Hebrews chapter 11. You heard a portion of it read just a moment ago. And I would like us to see what the Bible has to say about becoming a person of faith. I think we're all along the spectrum on that journey of faith today. But everybody will be finding something from Hebrews 11 that will help you to take one more little step. We've been moving through the book of Hebrews. If you're a part of our congregation, uh, ever since the month of December, we started our study called Jesus the Crux. You remember back around Christmas time. If you've not been here, if this is your first Sunday, for example, we're sort of jumping in midstream into the book of Hebrews. It's a fantastic book. It's, it's huge. It's heavy. But Hebrews chapter 11 is probably one of the most loved chapters in the whole Bible. I suspect that when some of you think about reading the book of Hebrews, your mind immediately goes to chapter 11. It's easy to read. It's fun to read. It's full of adventure. It's the story of many different people who lived back in Bible times. It's a chapter about faith. Some people have called this chapter the Faith Hall of Fame. Faith was what the people to whom this letter was originally written needed the most. Because if you know the story of the book of Hebrews, you know that this was written to a suffering church. It was written to a group of people who professed to love and know Jesus Christ, and yet they were being persecuted for their faith. It was official persecution. It was discrimination against the Christian people back in the day in which these people lived. So Hebrews 11 had special meaning for the people who originally read this letter. But it also has a lot of meaning to us today in 2011. It's a list of some people who were in the Old Testament who found that it was important to believe in God, who put their faith in God and who experienced a life that was pretty extraordinary. You heard about one of those people. His name was Abraham. We're going to look at his story a little bit as well as some of the other people mentioned in the chapter. But I want you to know right off This is too big a chapter to exhaust in one sermon. We could probably spend 20 Sundays just looking at Hebrews 11. So you'll walk away with probably just a little bit of an overview. But I do want to show you three things, three simple things from this chapter. First, what faith looks like. Secondly, where faith comes from. And thirdly, how faith can change your life if you have it. So what faith looks like, where it comes from, and how it's going to change your life. Let's dive in. First thing I want us to find out from Hebrews 11 is what faith looks like. Now in in verse 1 of this chapter, you have a definition of faith. We didn't read it, but let's look at it now. Verse 1 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, that's a little bit different from what many people would say faith is. Faith is defined in many different ways by many different people in many different settings. Some people, for example, think that faith is a blind leap in the dark. For other people, faith is merely another word for religion. Like one person might say, I am of the Christian faith. Another may say, I'm of the faith of Islam or something like that. And then for still other people, faith is the same thing basically as positive thinking, optimism, maybe something that you'd learn about at a Tony Robbins workshop. 
But none of those definitions is really what the author means in verse 1 when he says it's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. So here's what I'd like to do. Let me paint a picture of faith. Put some uh, sort of meat on the bones and let you see what it looks like in actual practice. Four things that faith looks like. First thing faith looks like is hope when everything seems hopeless. That's what faith looks like. It it looks like hope when everything seems hopeless. What's hope? Hope is the confident expectation of an eventual good outcome. For example, if I say to you that I hope that my wife makes me a delicious Easter dinner today. Well, if I'm using the word hope in the biblical sense, I'm saying I know for sure that she's going to make me a great dinner. I saw all the ingredients in the refrigerator. See, that's biblical hope. It's not just, oh, well, maybe... No, it's a confident expectation of an eventual outcome. Look at verses 11 and 12, and I want to show you Abraham's hope. Verse 11 says, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he considered God faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he, look how hopeless he was. He was as good as dead. (laughs) There's an honest statement he was as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore see abraham was about 80 years old and his wife sarah was about 70 years old when god came to abraham in genesis 15 and said abraham you and sarah are going to have a kid can you imagine anything more hopeless than that A woman 70 years old who was barren, who had never before carried a child, who heretofore was unable to conceive, having a baby. And actually, it got more interesting than that because Sarah didn't even have that baby for 20 more years. She was 90. Imagine how hopeless a situation that was. And yet Abraham believed God, it says in Genesis 15, and it was credited to him. As righteousness. Because you see, faith says nothing is impossible with God. It's hope when all around you seems hopeless. Second thing faith looks like is vision. Vision when you can't see the way ahead. Throughout this chapter are stories after stories of people who by faith were enabled to see the unseen. You ever watch CNN or the news when it's going over to Afghanistan or Iraq and you see soldiers through the night vision goggles? See, that's kind of what vision is. That's what faith gives you. The ability to see the unseen. Verse 8 is vision. Look at verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. See, by faith, he had the ability to see the unseen. Notice in that verse 8, the word later. To me, that's one of the most important words in the chapter. He would later receive this as his inheritance. Did you know that in Genesis 12, when God comes to Abraham and calls Abraham to leave his home, his family, his estate in Haran and go to a place that he would tell him about later, 
Did you know that in that chapter, God did not actually promise him an inheritance in Canaan? He basically said, Abram, get out of town. I want you to go to a place I want to show you. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a home there. It wasn't until Abraham was actually in Canaan that God actually promised him a land. See, you and I, our tendency is that we want to see the future now, don't we? I mean, thinking of myself personally here, I'm almost 60, three years 60. I want to know God's 10-year plan for my life. I want him to kind of lay it all out and tell me what's going to go on, you know, 65. I can't even, oh my goodness, I can't even think about those numbers. I want the future in my mind now. We don't want to wait. We don't want later. We don't want to grope about in the dark, not knowing where we're going. But faith says, I don't know the destination, but God does. Trust him. He'll get me there in his time. See, that's what vision when you can't see the way ahead looks like. Third thing. First, it's hope, then it's vision. The third thing that faith looks like is obedience. When you cannot predict the consequences. Obedience. Hebrews 11 is a list of people whose faith in God propelled them into risky, obedient action. We're not going to take time to look at them all, but if you go down through the list of people mentioned in Hebrews 11, for, for instance, verse 7, verse 7 talks about Noah. You've all seen those stories. You've seen the, the books and uh, the children's books. You've seen the movies where this man Noah is out there building a boat and everybody's laughing at him. That's obedient action. That's taking a risk when Noah didn't know the consequences of his choice there. But he obeyed by faith. Verse 29, later down in the chapter, talks about the exodus when the people of Israel were standing on the shore of the Red Sea and God was calling them to obey by walking across to see if he would part the waters as he had promised to do. That's risky, obedient action. And then there in verse 30, it talks about the Israelites marching around Jericho. Same thing. Obedience. When they didn't know, are these walls really going to fall down? This seems stupid what we're doing. Is God really going to cause Jericho to fall before us? But without question, the most dramatic step of obedience that's described in Hebrews 11, you heard it earlier. It's in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 22, you'll find that whole story. God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Isaac, up Mount Moriah, tie him to an altar and kill him. Talk about not knowing the consequence. Talking about obedience when you don't know what this is going to do. What was Abraham thinking, do you suppose, as he walked up Mount Moriah with his young son next to him? How could God mean for me to kill my son? I'm sure Abraham was thinking to himself, my only son, the one through whom the covenant promise would be fulfilled. But you read the story, Abraham obeyed. He laid his son out there by faith. He raised the knife by faith. And that's when, of course, if you don't know the rest of the story, 
you'll be glad to know that God never intended Abraham to kill his son Isaac. At the last second, God stopped him. He said, don't do it. I've provided a ram, he said to Abraham, for the burnt offering. But he did obey. He did everything God wanted him to do. He didn't know the consequences. He didn't know how God was going to make up for it, did he? Have you ever been in a place like that? Have you ever been in a place where if you really took God seriously and really wanted to do His will, you knew it was going to cost you something? And you stood there on the precipice of obedience or disobedience because you knew the cost that that step of faith was going to require. It was going to cost you something very, very dear. Have you ever been there? It might cost you your relationship with somebody. Perhaps it would cost you your job or the approval of somebody you wanted very, very much to like you. Or maybe it would cost you your comfort or your familiar surroundings or your money or something like that. In other words, what was your Isaac? What is your Isaac? That God is calling on you to be willing to let go of. See, if you've ever been there, if you're there now, you've been where Abraham was. Faith means obeying, not understanding what's going to happen, not knowing how God's going to make it work. But faith says that if God can raise the dead, he can take care of your Isaac. Your calling, my calling, is to obey. That's what faith looks like. It looks like hope, it looks like vision and obedience. And then the fourth and last thing that, that faith looks like is courage. Faith is courage when you are weak and broken. Courage when you're weak and broken. Look down the page at verse 32. I just love this section of Hebrews 11. It just is so exciting. Verse 32, the author says, What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings. Others were chained and put in prison. Some were stoned. They were sawed in two, put to death by the sword. Just a list of... Adventure after adventure, journeys of faith by the Old Testament people of God. And you know what? It's tempting to look at that list and to put these people in a totally different category from you and me. Right? I mean, to even call them heroes of faith. These, there's something different about their DNA, we say. I could never do any of those things. That's just a completely different kind of person. Listen, let me tell you something. If that's your conclusion about these people, you haven't known very much about them because you could go through the list of names in Hebrews 11 and every single one of them was a mess. Every single one of them was a mess in some way or other. For example, some of the names I just listed, Gideon, for instance. I mean, yeah, Gideon was a judge of Israel, great man of faith, but you know what? He led his nation into idolatry in his later years. Barak was a coward in battle. 
Samson was an impulsive, lustful man. Of course, you know about David, right? David was an adulterer and a murderer. See, Hebrews 11 is not so much a list of great people. Don't read it that way. Hebrews 11 is a list of people who believed in a great God. They were pretty ordinary, actually. They were broken and wounded and sinful. Faith doesn't require that you be a spiritual giant. It merely requires that you know what a giant our God is. Well, there you have it. There's a picture of faith as seen in Hebrews chapter 11. Hope, vision, obedience, courage. When things appear hopeless, when you can't see the next step in front of you, when you don't know the future, and when you're suffering from the effect of your own sins and frailties. The next question we need to answer then is where it comes from. Where does that come from? Because it doesn't just exist naturally. It's not something we're born with. Where do you get this faith? Answer, faith comes from knowing certain things about God. Just like I said a moment ago, knowing that he's great. Faith comes from knowing some stuff about God. And some of that stuff is here in Hebrews 11. For instance, in verse 3, it says that he created the universe by simply speaking it into existence. You've heard of the Big Bang? There it is. God spoke and the universe was. That's something about God that makes him great. And in verse 6, it says that he exists And he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And in verse 11, it says that he is faithful. See, when you know that about God, faith is easy. When you know the character of somebody who's making you a promise, it's easy to trust it. Tell you a story about when I was a dad of some little kids. I used to play a game with them. I could probably have been arrested for child abuse, but I played this game with them that was called, uh, Do You Trust Me? I would ask them to lie down on the floor and lie on their back and put their arms up behind them on the floor so their underarms were exposed. And I would say, Do You Trust Me? And I would get my little finger out and get closer and closer and closer to their underarm, like I was going to tickle them crazy. And I'll keep saying, do you trust me? I'm trustworthy, I kept saying. And invariably, they didn't trust me. They, you know, they locked their arms down because, yeah, I wasn't trustworthy. (laughs) I did tickle them to death. I loved that game. Um, But see, had I been trustworthy, then they would have learned, oh, yeah, I'll just let my arms be raised. Because my dad is not going to lie to me. Well, I may have just in fun, but God is not going to lie to you. God is not going to abuse you. God is not going to fool you, treat you like an idiot. God loves you. He loves you. He wants your good. And so when you know that about God, You can 
obey. You can hope yet again. You can be a courageous man, woman, or child. Look at it this way, okay? Let's look at it a different way. The reformers, namely Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and others, taught us something about faith that is very helpful. They said there are three parts of faith. Let me show you what the three are. They said, first of all, faith is information, right? I mean, information is the bedrock or the foundation of faith. You have to have certain facts. You have to have certain knowledge uh, in order to have faith. You can't have faith in nothing. Faith is faith in something, some basic content, some assertions of truth. And that's what we have about God in the Bible. We have information. We're told that God is the creator. He is loving. He is just. He sent Jesus to bear our sins. He rose from the grave. He is reigning over creation today. All of that is information. That's part one. Second part of faith is assent. You must be persuaded or convinced that the information that you have is true. You must assent to it. For instance, let's take an anarchist. An anarchist could memorize the Pledge of Allegiance, could say it word for word. He would have the information, but an anarchist would not assent to the Pledge of Allegiance. He wouldn't believe in it. If you're going to be a person of faith, you must not only have the information in your head, but you must say, I'm persuaded that that is true. I'm willing to buy it. But that's still not faith. Faith is not faith until you add the third story onto the house. There's got to be trust. Trust. You've got to rest in the information that you've agreed is true. You must take it into your life and be willing to make your choices and decisions by it and let it change you and guide you in your future. Once you have the information, you've ascended to it, and now you trust it. You're in Then you can put the roof on the house. That is faith. But if you take one little block away, the whole thing falls down. Faith is not faith until it's all three together. Let's take a simple illustration. Uh, Imagine a guy standing at the altar getting ready to be married. It's his wedding day. He's standing next to the preacher and he looks down the aisle and his bride-to-be emerges through the double doors. He's got information. Yep, that's my bride-to-be. That's her. I see her. She starts walking down the aisle, and his heart begins to to move within him. He's excited. He says, absolutely, I'm not turning back. Uh, There she is. That's my woman. But it's not until she stands next to him, and he says, I do, and puts a ring on her finger. That's trust. Information, assent, trust. Where are you in the process of faith? Here's another illustration. Bungee jumping. I've got the information. I see that rope. I know that it's held many people, kept them safe and everything. It's tied securely to the, uh, to the bridge. Yep, got the information. <laughs> I'd even assent to the fact that it would save my life and not kill me. Mike Osborne will never go bungee jumping. I will never get to the third story. 
Never. I don't care how much you pay me. I'm not going to jump off that bridge. Have you jumped off the bridge with Jesus? Are you trusting him? See, that's when faith is really faith. Otherwise, it's pretty much just head knowledge. Pretty much just, yeah, I know everything that I need to know, but I'm not trusting. I'm not following. You remember the video we saw earlier today? Following is faith. So that's where you get it. You get it from the information, from the ascent, and from the I'm in trust. But in the last place, let's wrap up with this question. How do you actually get it so that it begins to change your life? We've seen what faith looks like. We've seen where it comes from. Now let's make it personal. How do you get it? Well, let me answer that question with another question. What explains the sudden courage of the disciples after the death of Jesus? I mean, they were ready to throw in the towel and return to their careers in fishing. What changed Simon Peter from a traitor into a warrior for Jesus? What turned doubting Thomas into daring Thomas? What turned Saul of Tarsus into St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles? What transformed the early church into a people of bold love, death-defying witness and sacrificial service? And what explains the explosion of the Christian faith after the day of Pentecost such that today a third of the world's population, 2.2 billion people, are followers of Jesus of Nazareth? What explains all that? If you know the answer to that, that's where you get faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember verse 19 of our text today? Verse 19 said that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. See, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God didn't say, Oh, wait a minute, I won't kill you. There's a ram for the burnt offering. No, he sacrificed his own son all the way to death. But then three days later, Jesus raised from the dead. The empty tomb stands as indisputable evidence that Jesus is Lord, that He finished what He came to do, and that He is calling all people everywhere, including every single person in this room, to forsake all and follow after Him, to trust Him. See, faith is not a blind leap into the darkness. It's a confident, white-knuckled grasp on the, uh, on the promises of a God who cannot and will not lie, a God who fully paid for our sins on the cross, who rose again, conquered death, is reigning in heaven today, and one day will come back to make all things new. So, it's safe to cross this bridge. Jesus is calling all of us in this room this morning to take a step, another step of faith forward toward Jesus. If you've never done that before, maybe I'm the first one to invite you, but I do invite you to take a step toward Jesus. Perhaps it means reading the Bible for yourself, letting God speak to you. Read the book of John, for example. Find out the claims of Jesus. Maybe it means to meet with a Christian you know and pummel that guy or pummel that girl with questions about the faith. Maybe it means to go to church where the Bible is taught on a regular basis. Perhaps it means 
Perhaps it means to find a quiet place this afternoon and ask God, God, would you forgive me for the things I've done wrong? I turn from my sins. Will you receive me into your family? Take a step of faith toward Jesus wherever you are in that journey and you'll begin this exciting adventure of being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you can't see. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today for the privilege of seeing in your word these wonderful promises about faith. Thank you that you're a God who can't lie. Thank you that you invite us onto this amazing experience of walking with you into the unknown. Lord, sometimes we resist that journey because we want to know the future. We want to know what's going to happen. And sometimes you call us to be like Abraham. So, Lord, we pray that you will help us to uh, follow the example of these people of faith and take a step today, wherever we are, take another step of faith in obedience, in courage, in vision, and in hope. And we ask this, we plead this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the risen one. Amen.